Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 43. Is there a doctor in the house? Now I do have a confession to make with regards to this podcast. I find the ones I do about people to be the most interesting to go down the rabbit hole on. Be they royalty or just pioneers in their field, I love reading about and then telling the stories of interesting lives in such a great time of change as the 19th century was. And there were certainly some incredible men that shaped the world as we know it today. A scarce few I have already covered, but I have to say that among my favourites have been the fascinating Mary Shelley and the absolutely amazing Dr James Barry. I guess it's because women had so much more to go up against. Then they had to fight not what is today called a glass ceiling, but they were looking to break an iron one that many of the men of the time had forged to ensure that they remain above women in social and economic standing. For many women in the Victorian era, there were difficulties in getting anything but a basic education unless they had progressive parents. Fortunately for us, this episode's lady had exactly that. Newson Garrett was a man that came from a long line of ironworkers from around the East Suffolk area. He did have a basic education, but wasn't really inclined to continue with that, and so like all good tales, he set off to London to make his fortune. And it was here that he met, fell in love, and married his brother's sister-in-law. Her name was Louisa Dunnell, and also came from the same area of the country. It's always good to have a few things in common to talk about, yes? The loved-up couple moved to live in a pawnbroker's shop in the now infamous Whitechapel area of London. And I do mean loved-up, because they had three children in pretty quick succession. Sadly, a son died very young, leaving them with the two girls, Louis and Elizabeth. The Newsons would go on to have a total of 11 children that would survive to adulthood, so that's a good thing. And it was probably helped by their move out of the Whitechapel area to the London area of Long Acre, where Newsons' skill in the pawnbroker business saw him become a manager as well as a silversmith. 1841 saw Newson moving his ever-increasing family back to Suffolk, where he bought a business that malted barley. Used in the making of beer, Newson was soon highly successful, and the Snape Maltings building stands as an arts centre for the region in Oldborough to this day. Now, having those 11 children, he went on to build a mansion near Oldborough and have children that would be highly successful in a variety of professions. Their daughter Millicent would later go on to be one of the leaders of the suffrage movement in the kingdom. And while Newson wasn't a well-educated man, he certainly did not deny his children the benefits of an education or choosing their own fortunes. His daughter Elizabeth was interested in local politics, and this was encouraged by her parents, 
as well as being given the freedom to explore the town unaccompanied and in her own time. And it is Elizabeth that is the subject of this episode, because apart from the accomplishments of her siblings, Elizabeth would have a rather remarkable life. With no school in Oldborough, Elizabeth and her sister were educated by their mother until age 10, and then by a governess. Apparently, Elizabeth did not think much of the woman and would try to outwit her as often as she could. But at age 13, Elizabeth and her sister Louie were sent off to a boarding school. While she did get to learn languages and English literature, later in life, Elizabeth did state she thought her teachers were stupid, which is a comment I've heard from other highly intelligent children, but let's take it with a grain of salt here. Elizabeth does admit that it was her schooling here that gave her the lifelong love of reading. So that's a win for the teachers right there. But she was not happy about the lack of education in science and mathematics. Their father, in sending the girls to the boarding school, had insisted that the girls be allowed a hot bath once a week. And it might give you some idea of personal hygiene at the time that the sisters became known as the Bathing Garrets. Finishing in 1851, they were treated by their parents to a short trip abroad, which culminated in visiting the Great Exhibition in Hyde Park in London. I'm sure you've heard of it. Back at home and helping tend house, Elizabeth studied Latin and mathematics herself and reading basically anything she could find. Her sister Millicent recalls weekly talks by Elizabeth where she would regale her siblings with conversation on current affairs from around the world. At other times, Elizabeth and her sister would visit old school friends and acquaintances. Among these was one Emily Davies. Emily was an early feminist and would later go on to co-found Girton College in Cambridge. Still educating today, the college was the first women's college in Cambridge and helped pioneer women's education. And it was around this time that Elizabeth read of an American woman, one Elizabeth Blackwell, who became the first female doctor in those rebellious colonies in 1849. So in 1859, when Dr. Blackwell was visiting London, Elizabeth visited her now married sister Louis in the capital. While there, she joined the Society for Promoting the Employment of Women. The Society was organising Dr. Blackwell's tour, and through that contact, she managed to meet the doctor personally. Given her future life, this meeting clearly had a profound effect on Elizabeth. The apocryphal story is that during a meeting in 1860 with Emily Davies, the two women decided on careers that would help in the advancement of women in society. Emily, coming as no surprise to those of you that were listening two minutes ago, intended to focus on offering university-level education to women. Elizabeth's younger sister Millicent had decided on politics and advocating for the right of women to vote. And Elizabeth? Well, she decided that the medical profession was where women could excel. Elizabeth wanted to become a doctor.
Naturally, Elizabeth experienced opposition to her entry in the medical field. Firstly, her father was against the idea. You can imagine a pretty much uneducated man striving to provide for his family in this era would be opposed to any real sort of change. I am speculating here, but I would be calling him conservative in the sense that he was a traditionalist culturally. But don't forget, this was a man who took his own destiny in his hands, strove and worked hard, created a successful career as a pawnbroker and silversmith, then later in his malting business. You don't get that sort of success from the lower economic class without being able to think outside the box. Also, he was a devoted family man, and he soon realised the treasures he had in his daughters and offered them all the support he could, including financial needs. Then of course, there were the men that were firmly entrenched in the medical profession and their misogyny. Doctors refused to allow Elizabeth to train as a doctor. So she gave up, became a housewife with three kids and a puppy. <laughs> I just like to think you all paused then and said, what, what? Of course she didn't give up. If you can't beat them, change the game as they say. And Elizabeth was the embodiment of a game changer. She spent six months working as a surgery nurse at the Middlesex Hospital in London. Proving her worth in that field, she was then allowed in an outpatient's clinic. Elizabeth then attempted to enrol in the hospital's medical school, but was denied there. But clearly she had to have had a reputation of being a person with some valuable medical skills, because she was allowed to receive tuition with the resident apothecary. Of course, she had to continue her work as a nurse during this time, but somehow she juggled the two tasks more than competently. Combine that with the fact that Elizabeth personally employed a tutor to teach her anatomy three evenings a week and you just know you're dealing with a woman that intends to get what she wants. Through her hard work, intelligence and skill, Elizabeth was finally allowed into the chemistry lectures and also the dissecting room. Naturally, the male students she was learning with protested, but to their credit, the administration did support her. And I think that gives you some idea of just how good she must have been to gain the respect of what would have been a group of old men well institutionalised in the medical profession. When Elizabeth left Middlesex Hospital, it was with honours in chemistry and what was called Materia Medica, the study of substances that can aid in medical practice. Over the next year, Elizabeth obtained certificates in anatomy and physiology, these were done privately rather than through an educational facility, but make no mistake, they were as valid a qualification as anything available at the time. With these qualifications, as well as those she had attained with the apothecary at Middlesex Hospital, Elizabeth knew that she was moving forward in her goal towards being a doctor. And if you want to change the game you're in, well, you better know the existing rules. And do you think Elizabeth knew those rules? Of course she did. Because having trained under an apothecary, gained all that knowledge, as well as her other qualifications, Elizabeth applied to what was known at the time as the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries. Now, these men were genuine medical practitioners. 
Rather than the surgeons of your time that you might think of like Robert Liston, the apothecaries were more like your modern general practitioners. And their charter made no reference to the sex of applicants. So they couldn't refuse her application. And so, in 1862, Elizabeth Garrett was among 51 men who took the entrance exam. Of course she passed. And in conjunction with the studies there, Elizabeth continued her private studies with professors from around the country. Just an aside here, the only way Elizabeth could have continued this study was having it funded. So you just know her dad was living up to his promise to support and encourage his daughter in her pursuit of her dream. But back to the story, and it was in 1865 that Elizabeth took the final exam and obtained her license. Elizabeth Garrett became the first woman to be allowed to practice medicine in the United Kingdom. For those of you playing at home, you're no doubt asking yourself, what about Dr. James Barry? And yes, that is a valid question because like you, I am a huge fan of Dr. Barry. But Dr. Barry did not openly present as a woman and managed to avoid the sexist stigma that the now Dr. Garrett faced throughout her career. I would never take anything away from the incredible achievements of Dr. Barry and the struggles they faced in navigating the world in their own way, but for Dr. Garrett to achieve what she did in the face of the societal bias counts solidly as an incredible first. I'm an Australian as you well know by now, and we're always the sucker for an underdog and what they can do. And Dr. Garrett was just getting started. No one would give her a medical posting because, well, she's a woman. So Dr. Garrett started her own practice in London. It was slow going at first, but she kept at it. Early on, the doctor instituted a program to give poor women medical aid. Think about that for a moment. For people that literally made a few pence a day to have access to someone qualified in medicine was an incredible thing. Reminds me of those amazing social programs that Dr. Barry created as well. These were medical professionals who not only worked hard in gaining their qualifications, but followed through in their beliefs that everyone should receive the care they deserve as human beings. By 1866, Dr. Garrett had opened another medical facility, the St. Mary's Dispensary for Women and Children. 1866 also saw another outbreak of the dreaded cholera. And as they say, any port in a storm, so many people that would have otherwise avoided seeing a woman doctor decided that living really was better than dying, and so Dr. Garrett found herself inundated with patients. Her first year after opening the new facility saw 3,000 of them. Sure, she wasn't working alone, but think about the numbers and just how busy this amazing woman was. That's nearly 800 people a day for a year. Oh, and did I mention during the same time that she also made over 9,000 outpatient visits? Yeah, she did that too. Her work ethic and commitment to her discipline just blows my mind. And during the following years, she found out that the French University of Sorbonne admitted women. So she went and studied French, applied for a medical degree, and got that in 1870. 
Seriously, the term unstoppable force comes to mind here. Also in 1870, with the highest vote count among candidates, Dr Garrett became the first woman to gain admission to the London School Board for Local Education. Additionally, she was also made a visiting position to the East London Hospital for Children. A year later, Dr Garrett married James Anderson. He was managing a shipping firm and was supportive of her independence and life goals. They had three children, though sadly only the daughter Louisa survived childhood. And later on, like her mother, Louise went on to become a political activist and also a doctor of medicine. Now, I'm already on record as saying just how incredible the good doctor's workload was, but at this point something had to give. With a full family, a medical practice and the dispensary, it was in the next year or so that she gave up the visiting physician position as well as the school board position. That said, by now her dispensary had expanded to the point that in 1872 it became the new hospital for women and children. It specialised in treatment of women and gynaecological conditions, offering them medical aid where many places barely acknowledged the genuine medical difficulties that women could experience. In 1873, she became the first woman accepted into the British Medical Association. The VMA then promptly banned women from joining until 1892, even though she was allowed to remain. And in 1897, she was made the president of the East Anglian branch of the VMA. Following on from this in 1874, she co-founded the London School of Medicine for Women. As the kingdom's first teaching hospital for women, this was pioneering stuff. And Dr. Garrett Anderson, as she was now known, was the dean from 1883 to 1902. And it was her work as a doctor that was influential in the creation of the 1876 Act of Parliament that was passed allowing women to enter medical professions. I mean, how amazing is that? You work your whole life advocating for women in a role where men clearly dominate but you are so good and you work so hard that the government of the time decides, fair enough, we need more like her, so let's make it happen. Pretty impressive, really. And it was during that same year of 1874 that she was involved in a public debate with the pioneering psychiatrist Henry Maudsley. He had published an article called Sex and the Mind in Education, and in said article, he argued that education for women caused overexertion and a reduction in reproductive capacity. Education could even cause nervous or mental disorders. So there you go, ladies. Now you know why education is bad for you. Good Lord, what an idiot. Our doctor rebutted this stupidity by saying that the real danger for women was not education, but boredom. She thought that fresh air and exercise was better than sitting around a fire reading a book. As I said, Dr Garrett Anderson held that position of dean until 1902. But just to sum up from there and outside our century of choice, the doctor retired in 1902 and moved back to Oldborough. And yes, I did say retired, but that didn't stop her becoming the mayor in 1908. 
the first woman to attain such a post in the United Kingdom. She also continued her work in the women's suffrage movement, having been a founding member of the committee in Britain. In 1907, Dr Garrett Anderson's husband passed away, but in 1908 she was part of the women's social and political union that even attempted to storm the House of Commons, so she certainly wasn't slowing down in her retiring years. She continued supporting her causes until she died on December 17, 1917. Her daughter Louisa actually spent time in prison for her suffrage protests and also became a doctor like her mother. Her name is, to this day, on medical buildings around Britain and the University of Worcester, which opens this year of 2023 and is naming its medical building the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Building. And I like to think that she would have enjoyed having her name associated with medical education in perpetuity. I have mentioned some other incredible women in the course of looking at Dr. Garrett Anderson's life. What I did enjoy about them all is that while I'm sure they may have had differences of opinions in their lives, they all worked together to promote the education of women, not just in the medical arena but throughout fields that they could excel in and chip away at the misogyny of the time. They carved their way into society by hard work and skill. And you have to absolutely respect that. One final note, this will be the last episode in the current season of The Victorian Gas Lamp. I'm going to take a break for a couple of months. Please bear with me, I have lots of episodes I have to write. But as for now... Here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at VictorianGaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>